Amen. God is good. Amen. Uh, For those of you who are new to New Philly today, we want to say welcome. Uh, We we are glad that you are able to make it here and get here. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure on your way here, you probably saw some of our leaders. Uh, They were standing outside in the cold with their signs. And I I hope that that sign when you came in and it said you made it, that that was a blessing to you. (laughs) Uh, There's so many people that as they uh, try to find uh, New Philly, they get lost. Even finding New Philly Itaewon, they get lost. And so uh, we wanted to help you guys out. And so every week, um, especially if you are inviting friends or you're not coming with a friend, uh, you can always just let them know to look out for the big blue signs that say uh, New Philadelphia Church or halfway there, almost there. You made it, you know, and because uh, we want to encourage you as you come on out to New Philly. If you're ready for the word today, I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them, I'm ready for that meat. I'm ready for that meat. <laughs> today, I'm not going to bring you any milk. I'm going to bring you the sirloin today. You know what I'm saying? Today, I'm going to I'm going to bring you the the Mercados, the Brazilian barbecue, you know, mm. snap. I was fasting for 10 days doing a juice fast the past uh uh, 10 days I ended on Friday and, and all I wanted was some Brazilian. It's like, actually when you're fasting, you want just anything. Like, I don't even like tteokbokki, but I was walking by like, can I, can I just get like a little, can, I just, I just want a little, just let me have a little piece of duck, like rice cake. You know, Ajumas were looking at me all crazy cause I was walking by like, You know, <laughs> probably all freaked out because I also got this new jacket. I got a winter jacket and it's got fur on it. And so whenever I wear it, it looks like I got it's, it's black fur also. So it looks like I got this huge afro. Right, so, you know. <laughs> Turn into your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to continue our series in First Corinthians. I believe this is our 18th message in 1 Corinthians. Wow. We've been going through this. Chapter 10. And when you're there, say amen. Amen. If you don't have your Bible, you can look up on the screen. And we're going to just read verses 1 to 14. And so I'm going to take the odd, you take the even. All right. And so here we go. Let's read this together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
Dang. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And the last verse altogether, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I thank you for every person that is here today. I thank you, God, that, uh, that, Lord, that you've given us this day. This is the day that you have made, and we rejoice in it, God, and we're glad to be here, Lord. Father, I pray that, God, that your Holy Spirit would go out as your word is preached. And I pray, Father, that, Lord, it would bring forth a harvest in our lives, that it wouldn't just be a message that we hear and goes through one ear and out the other, but, God, that it would be sown into our lives to bring forth fruit. God, I bind the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and I pray for life and life abundant in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can you cut that heater off right there? It's actually, it actually is pretty hot up here with these lights. Let me get a tan. I want to give you guys some background. Like I said, this is the, uh, the 17th or 18th message in the book of First Corinthians as we're going through this book as one house. The reason why we're doing that is because the Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed. God, all Scripture is God-inspired, and it's useful for teaching. It's useful for rebuking. It's useful for preaching and instructing and training us in righteousness. And so it's useful for us to go through it. And go through it sometimes verse by verse, line by line. I know some people, they like to just skip, you know. I don't understand what that says. I'm going to skip that. You know, numbers, I don't want anything to do with numbers. I'm going to skip the whole book, you know. And actually, that book is not all about just numbers. Like, God didn't put statistics in the Bible and just say, read these numbers. Um, But we want to go through it. So I'm going to talk about the city of Corinth. The book, 1 Corinthians, is written to a people that... They're called Corinthians because they live in a city called Corinth. And Corinth, it was a trade city. It was a multi-ethnic city in Greece, which was under the rule of the Roman Empire. Corinth was, it was known, it had so many people that flowed in and out of the city. It was literally actually a city on a hill. Corinth was a city that was set up on a hill and it overlooked the Mediterranean, overlooked a large body of water. And so it was a very important city. People would flow into Corinth and they would flow and that's how they would get their goods out to other places. Uh, Corinth also, it was like a city on a hill, but behind that hill was a mountain. And up at the top of that mountain was a temple. And at the top of that, at the top of that mountain was a temple to the goddess Venus. You've heard of Venus? Like, I know, like in America, I thought like Venus was just that, uh, what is that? That product where women use the, the, the razor? You know, I'm your Venus, I'm your fire, your desire. I I don't even know how I know that. I shouldn't know that. Uh, I I never bought Venus. I mean, I'm just saying. Anyways. Yeah, up on that, up on that mountain was a temple and that temple was dedicated to the Roman goddess 
Venus or the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And when the Romans took over, many of them, they took on the gods and goddesses of the Greeks. And so at the top of this mountain was this temple unto the Greek goddess Aphrodite and Venus. And she's known as the goddess of love, right? That was what they worshiped her for. And I'll tell you a little bit about Aphrodite. Aphrodite was not only the Greek or Roman goddess of love, she was also known to be the most beautiful goddess. She was known to be the most beautiful goddess out of all of their gods and out of all of their mythology. This is going to make sense, so follow me. Um, We're going somewhere. And so they would worship her. But the thing about Aphrodite was that she was a goddess that was married, but she was known for being unfaithful. She was a goddess that was married to one God, but she was known in Greek and Roman mythology for being unfaithful. She would she would sleep around with other gods and goddesses. Uh huh. Yeah, I said it. (laughs) She would sleep around with other gods and other goddesses and even human beings. You know, you ever seen the movie Troy? Well, the Greek goddess Aphrodite or Venus was famous in the the myth or the story of Troy because she was known to be very jealous of Helen of Troy because she lusted after Paris. Paris being Hector's brother is Orlando Bloom. He was like, I did not respect him in that movie. I was like, what's wrong with him? How come he kills Achilles, you know? Anyways. She was uh, continually jealous of other gods, goddesses, and even desiring the affection of human beings. Her followers in Corinth, they would go up and they would worship her. But here's how they would worship Aphrodite. They would go up to the temple. They would go all the way up to the temple. And the way that they would worship Aphrodite was by sleeping with one or many of the thousand of temple prostitutes that were there. And and there were thousands of temple prostitutes there because the men and the women, the families there would dedicate their daughters and sons to the worship of Aphrodite to serve there as prostitutes. And so what would happen was the people would come in and then when they went up to worship, they would worship her through sexual immorality. And Corinth was uh, Corinth was taken over. I said it was a Greek city, but it was taken over by Rome in 146 B.C. You you can take notes. The Bible, it has historical information and it helps us to understand what's going on. Corinth was taken over by Rome in 146 B.C. And when Rome took over, what they did was they completely Like they demolished Corinth. They killed all the men. They kept the women and children and they raped all the women and children. And in Corinth, what they did was over the next hundred years, they Corinth was nothing. It was a wasteland. But Rome Romans, they began to rebuild Corinth in 44 B.C. So they began to rebuild Corinth, but they, there were no men. There were, no, there were only women and children. So what began to happen was that traders and, and people from Rome, from the other places in the empire, they would come into to Corinth and they would sleep with the women and sleep with the children. And that's how the population began to increase. When, in 146, when Rome completely smashed Corinth, they also destroyed the temple. Now, I said that the way they worshipped by, was by going up to the temple and sleeping with all these prostitutes, right? Well, after they destroyed the temple, they actually continued to worship Aphrodite. But instead of worshiping Aphrodite by going to the temple and sleeping with thousands of prostitutes, they would go to the city square. So in the heart of the city, it's like Kwangwa Moon. It's like City Hall, right? 
They, men and women and children would go to the city square and they would worship Aphrodite by sleeping with one another, sleeping with prostitutes, all in broad daylight right in the city square. This was Corinth. This was the city. Not only that, but Corinth was nearby Athens. We all have heard of Athens, right? If you've ever looked at a map or studied, listened at least once in high school, you've heard of Athens, right? Athens was known for its spirit of intellectualism, and Corinth was pretty close to Athens. So Corinth also took on that same spirit of intellectualism. So what also Corinth was known for was a lot of division, a lot of factions, a lot of racism, a lot of hatred, a lot of violence in Corinth. And it would all happen at the city square. So all of these things would happen in the city square. You had men, women, and children that would flock to the city square every day, worshiping the Greek goddess Aphrodite through their bodies. And then you also had people coming in fighting and race. They were racism and factions and divisions all happening in the city square. It was nasty. It's just a weird place. Like you wouldn't want to be there, right? Now, before you start saying like, oh, Corinth, like, oh, that's the most awful place ever. You know, just go to Itaewon on a Saturday night. Just cut on your television. You know, I actually believe that if Paul were here today and he looked at he's he's seen Corinth and he sees Seoul, I believe he'd say, hey, this is Corinth 2.0. You know, if you walk down the street and you see the. The two, the two barbell shop, uh, barbershop signs, right? The two posts, you see them together? That means there's a brothel. In Seoul, if you look around, you, you notice that there's brothels in every street corner. If you go into Itaewon at night, it's notorious for this area called Hooker Hill, Homo Hill. Itaewon is actually located in the heart of the city. And if a place like, like Corinth, in the heart of the city, there was all of this going on, what does it say for the city? If something like that was happening in, in Itaewon, what does that say for the rest of the city? But the craziest part about this was that God decided to start a church there. See, Corinth was like the nastiest place ever. It was a place where like if you walk through Corinth, you leave and you want to wash your hands. It's like pretty nasty. But God looked at Corinth and instead of saying, I want to judge Corinth and I'm going to smite Corinth. He said, I'm going to start a church there. The church in Corinth was started in around 50 A.D. by Paul. He went in and he was now Corinth continued to get worse and worse and worse and worse. But Paul goes in at around 50 A.D. and he's. He meets someone named Aquila and Priscilla. They're tent makers. And Paul also, Paul had a job. That means we should have jobs. You know, if he's preaching the gospel, he's doing all this stuff. We need to have a job. But Paul, he's a tent maker and he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And then he goes into Corinth and he preaches the gospel. He goes and he preaches the gospel. But as I said, Corinth was pretty jacked up, right? So the people, they actually start throwing stuff at Paul. They actually assault him. You can see it in Acts chapter 18, where Luke accounts of where they assaulted Paul. But God speaks to Paul and he says, you know, Paul, they're throwing stuff at you right now, but I want you to stay. And so Paul says, cool, I'll stay. I probably wouldn't have, you know. 
but Paul is, he decides to stay and he stays there actually for 18 months. He stays there for 18 months until the church grew, grows more stable. And then all of a sudden the church begins to blow up. The church begins to grow and it begins to grow exponentially. And I mean, even hearing this stuff about people, all this prostitution, all this immorality, all this fighting and, and division happening in the city square, doesn't it ever, you're not thinking right now, why would God start a church in a place like that? You know, when you read in the Old Testament, you read of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Corinth was like Sodom and Gomorrah having a kid, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah being like, we're going to have a baby and we're going to call it Corinth. Sodom and Gomorrah, if you don't know what Sodom and Gomorrah was about, there's a story where Lot, he brings in these two men, they're angels, and they come into his place. And the men and the women, they all go outside and they're screaming and yelling. They're trying to beat down the doors and they're saying, bring these men out so that we can have sex with them. That's crazy. If someone starts knocking on my door like that, I know. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm climbing out a window and then I'm moving. Y'all going to see me in Dejan or something. Send y'all a Facebook post. It's like, why would God start a church in a place like that? Why would God even start a church in a place like Itaewon? You know, there's so many, there's so many churches where, especially when we were starting this church plant, where so many pastors, we said, we feel like God's calling us to start a church in Itaewon. And they were like, go right ahead. Good luck. Why would God start a church in a place like Corinth? He starts a church in a place like Corinth because God doesn't go to the places where we think he would go. Many times we think that God wants to go to the places that are the cleanest, the brightest, the places that seem the most well put together. But that's not how Jesus operates. Actually, Jesus, he looks at the places that are the most broken, the places that are the most hurt, the places that are the most vile, the places where the deepest and darkest things are going on. And he says, I want to start a church there. It's the same way in our own personal lives. Many of us think that Jesus is going to come into our lives when we got it all together. Our sister Daisy, she did a presentation yesterday and it was talking about uh, the Philippines, but she had this random quote. I don't know how she got this quote, but it was talking about the most prevalent lie that we say as humans. You know what that lie is? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. Oh, what's going on with you? No, I'm fine. Because we think that that's what God wants. God won't start a work in my life until I've got it all together, until I've got every area in my life put together, then he'll start. When I've stopped looking at that pornography, when I've stopped sleeping with my girlfriend, when I've stopped doing drugs, when I've stopped sinning, then God will start with me. But the way that God works is that he starts in the place that's the most vile. He encounters you in the deepest slavery. He encounters you in the places where you're the most broken. And he says, I'm going to start church right there. He doesn't wait for you to have it all put together. He comes in at that place. That's how Jesus operated. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the well. It's not the well that need a doctor, but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus walked the earth, he wasn't looking for the people who had it all put together. The people who looked like they had it all put together were the ones who were dying on the inside. But the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the people who... Everyone was like, yo, they, they're jacked up. They are jackified. 
like stay away from them. Those were the ones where Jesus said, hey, where's the party at? I'm gonna hang out with you guys. Because that's how that's how God operates. And this is why he operated in Corinth. This is why he went to Corinth, because he wanted to start church in a place that was the most broken. And so what happens is Corinth begins to blow up. Corinth begins to explode. Church begins to happen in Corinth. And you wonder why. It's because all of a sudden Paul preaches and the Holy Spirit comes and people's lives start being changed. And when God meets you in your deepest, darkest place, you don't mind telling other people about Jesus. If you think that God, God came to you when you had it all together, then you'll wait until you have it all together to tell someone else about Jesus. But what we see in the Bible is that God usually goes to those who are unbelievably broken. And then when he touches them, they go and tell everybody. And so Corinth begins to explode and it begins to blow up. And now people are being transformed. It's Corinth. It, it was a rapid growth. This, all the seats were packed every Sunday. Everyone was following around all the time. But then over time, what began to happen was that their influence began to fade. Corinth stopped being a church that was going against the current and they started to flow with the current. Like I said, there was all this sexual immorality, all these divisions, all these things that were happening outside. All of a sudden they started to happen inside. Now, all of a sudden, instead of the people making a commitment to turn the other way because of what Jesus has done in their lives, the people start saying, well, mm, a little sexual immorality here, a little jealousy and bitterness here. I mean, what's the it doesn't hurt anything. And they started flowing with the current and then all of a sudden their influence started to wane. You know, so many Christians, they want to be relevant. And their way of going about being relevant is being like the world. But if you're like the world, you're like the world. You're not you're not any different. You don't stick out. You just fit into the crowd and there's no influence. So I love this quote. It says that dead fish flow downstream. When you're dead, when you're dying. You start flowing with the current instead of against it. And so Paul writes to them, he writes to them. And, and in this passage, we find that in chapter 10, this is where Paul begins to write to them because he wants them to really be the light. He wants them to remember what it's about being the light. What does it mean to be a community, to be a group of people that flow against the current and bring about change? What does it mean for you to actually have influence and change people's lives? What does it actually mean for you to be a city on a hill, a light that shines in the midst of darkness? And so he writes to them. And in chapter 10, we find that he is in the middle of talking to them about food that they sacrifice to idols. I want us to look. We're going to look at verses six. We're going to look at verses six to 11 or six to 12. Well, actually, no, not six to 12 verses one to one to four. Sorry about that. We're gonna look at verses one to four. And Paul writes to me, says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. I remember when I read this, I was like, Paul, this is crazy. I have no idea what you're talking about. Like my fathers were under the cloud. Like 
There's clouds everywhere. Like, what are you talking about? Baptized into Moses? They drank the spiritual drink? Like, what kind of cup is that? You know, like, I'm going to pass that cup. I don't want that cup, right? But Paul talks to them because he talks about, he's wanting to speak to them because God started a journey in their lives. A couple weeks ago, I talked about journeying with God, right? God started that journey with them in Corinth and he started in their deepest, darkest places. But somewhere along those lines in that journey, they forgot. They forgot who had set them free. They had forgotten what had brought them out and they'd forgotten the destiny, the promises that they were meant to walk into. And so Paul writes to them. And in this first part, he wants to remind them of someone else's journey. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. He was talking about their forefathers. They're the Israelites, the the Hebrews, the Jews, right? All were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. What Paul is really saying to them is that their forefathers have went through everything that they've went through. And he says he explains to them that the Israelites, they experienced the literal exodus out of slavery. You know the story of, of the Israelites? If you haven't read a Bible, you ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt? All things are possible when you believe, when you believe, though hope is frail. It's, it's hard to kill, right? You, you know that. Word. It's that story of Moses and how Moses is brought out and then how Mo, God uses Moses to bring the, the Israelites out of slavery. And when it says under the cloud, it's actually talking about the Passover. When God sent the spirit to go over and for those who did not have the lamb's blood over their door, all the firstborn in Egypt were killed. God is gangster, right? And then all of a sudden, so all the firstborn in Egypt die. There's this cry that comes out of Egypt. And, you know, this whole time Moses is like, you know, let my people go, you know, and Pharaoh's like, no. But then when his son dies, he's like, okay, y'all can go here. Take some money. You can just go. And so they leave. But then as they're leaving, they get to, they get to the Red Sea. So here it talks about them passing through the sea in chapter 10. And it says, and what that's referring to is when they get there and Moses, he lifts up his staff and the sea parts and they walk through the sea. And then it continues to talk about how they were baptized into Moses and and under the cloud. And then it says they drank the same spiritual food and same spiritual drink. What that's referring to in this passage is how God had taken them. Can you put the passage up on the screen? It's about how God took them and how he took them through this journey, through the wilderness, into the promised land. How he took them out of slavery and into the promises of God. And what he's saying to them is that God's done the same thing in your life. He's brought an exodus. He's brought you out of slavery. And now he's bringing you into the promises. In each and every one of our lives, when Jesus comes into your life, what he does is he brings you out of slavery. He brings in an exodus. And then the whole point is not just for you to get set free. It's not just for you to become a Christian so you can come to church on Sunday. That's not what it's about. Really what it's about is about you being set free so that you'll go on that journey with God being led into the promises of God. Are you living in the promises of God? Do you know his promises for your life? Many people think that Christianity is just some dead religion. I'll just come to church. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray, go to sleep as I pray. And 
Nothing in my life's going to change. It's just something that I can do to feel better about myself. But God has made it so that you would walk into his promises, his good, pleasing and perfect will for your life. And so he's reminding them that this is what's happened in the Israelites lives and this is what's happening in your life. But then he tells them, but the Israelites, they didn't make it. It's kind of like your, your grandparents, right? They always have that that danger story. You know, they tell you about something that happened when they were like my grandmother, Nina. She always telling me stories about stuff that happened when she was my age. I'm like, I don't even know if they had cars back then. Like, what are you talking about? But he's reminding them of things that have happened in the past because he's wanting them to take these warnings, to heed these warnings so that they'll walk into the promises of God for their future. And he he sets aside five specific things that prevent them from going into their destiny. He sets apart five specific things that keep them from walking on their journey with God. Because he wants them to understand that the choices that you make determine the kind of person you become. And the kind of person that you become determines what you birth into the earth. I meet so many people who want to do good and want to start good and want to birth good things into the earth. But they keep making decisions that fill them with death and with evil and with destruction. You know, it's like that one that one New Year's resolution you're always trying to keep, but you never are able to keep it. I think I've been trying to go work out for five years. I mean, I know it's it's but for most of us, it's so much deeper than that. There's so much more that we're trying that we want to do and that we want God to move in through move through our lives. But we don't see it happen. Every person, even people on the street, that's what they want. But the reason they they're not able to do it is because inside. What you have on the inside is what you'll manifest on the outside. That's why Christ came. Christ came to change us from the inside out. Christ came to to renew us on the inside so that what we birth on the outside will be good and precious and whole. And so Paul speaks to them and he's like, I want you to know about these five things that transform you in a negative way. And I want you to make a decision against these things. And I want us to read. We're going to read from verses 12 uh, verses six to twelve. How about I read the even? I mean, how about you read the even and I read the odd? First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 to 12. One, two, three, Shijak. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul lays out five different choices that we make. And that we're tempted to make as people. And these choices destroy us. These choices transform us. They change us as people. And they keep us from what God is wanting us to go into. And so we're going to go through them right now. We're going to go through the, each one. 
And we're going to start with the first one. Verse 6. The first one's lust. He says, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not desire after evil as they did. That word for desire is actually just lust. Now, before some of you be like, okay, well, that's just, you know, a lot of times in the church, we act like lust is just a guy issue, you know? Okay. All right. Yeah. Pastor Marcus preach to the men right now, you know, but lust is so much more than, than sexual lust is lust takes on many forms. Lust means to just to covet, to long after. It means to desire something that God has not promised or God has not provided. And our culture and our lives, so much in this world is set up around lust. You know, on on my Mondays, it's Sabbath. And so I take that day to just delight in the Lord. And sometimes, especially when it's cold, I go to the malls because it's like the only place I can go to that's warm. And I don't have to be outside all day. But man, walking through the malls, I, I lust after sneakers. You know what I'm saying? Like I have this back home. I had over like 50, 60 different pairs of sneakers. Like I was a huge sneakerhead. Like, and I would spend money. Like I remember in college, there were moments where I would not eat. That was addiction. Yeah. Don't judge me. Uh, I'll be, I'll be looking at some of y'all shoes. I noticed that bondage. I know we got that same problem. You know, it's not just sexual lust, but lust takes on many different forms. But what lust does is it changes us. Lust perverts us into people who are no longer provided for. People who no longer have promises, but people instead who lack. Lust changes us and it it causes us to think and to live as people who lack. And now all of a sudden, what you're doing is you're walking around selfish, self-centered and using others. It makes you a slave. The second one is idolatry. Everyone say idolatry. Idolatry. Verse seven, he says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I remember the first time I read this passage, I was like, God, what's wrong with playing? Like, what's wrong with some free time? Like, you don't want me to eat and drink? That's not idolatry. I mean, I guess it can be if I eat food too much. If I drink too much, if I play too much, but what's wrong with eating and drinking and playing? You know, idolatry, what idolatry does is that idolatry is destructive because what you revere determines the kind of the kind of way you'll live your life. What you worship determines the way that you'll live. The God that you have in your life, that whatever sits upon the throne of your life is what you will sacrifice to. Whatever sits upon the throne of your heart is what you will sacrifice for. What is your idol? Is it money? Do you sacrifice everything in your life to make sure you get more money? Is it family? I know a lot of people that they sacrifice everything for their family. Their family is their idol. Is it sex? Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it that people will know your name? Is that what you sacrifice for? Is that the one thing that is removed from your life? You would crumble. You know, if 
your idol's money or family or if it's Buddha, if it's Muhammad, if it's anything else, you will sacrifice your life before it and it'll change the way that you live. In this passage, when it talks about how they ate and drank and they rose up to play, it was actually coming from Exodus chapter 32. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 32. And the interesting thing about this is that this comes, Exodus chapter 32 is one chapter after Exodus chapter 31, obviously, but where God speaks to Moses that he has anointed Bezalel. And what happens in Exodus chapter 32 is that the people get restless waiting on Moses. So they take everything that they have in their lives and they say, let us make an idol that we may worship it. And so they make a golden calf. They forge a golden calf and they worship it. And the interesting thing is that, like I said before, a chapter before God talks about how he's anointed Bezalel to to build the house of God. And this is our year of inspiration. Amen. But if you don't get this about idolatry, you'll take the gifts of God and you'll use it to make idols. You'll take that creativity. You'll take that inspiration. You'll take those things that God has blessed you with. And instead, you'll use it to worship your idol. You'll use it to worship money. You'll use it to worship yourself or to worship power, or to worship family or to worship some other God. And what happens in Exodus chapter 32 is they make this golden calf. And the crazy thing about this golden calf, you can see it. Um, it talks about it. The verses on verse six. They make this golden calf and then they make bread. They make sacrifices to it. And then it says that they ate and drank and then they grows up to play. But the thing about this golden calf, it wasn't just like some little nice little calf that was just chilling. It actually represented a pagan bull god of fertility. That golden calf was a pagan god that represented love and sex. Like Venus, like Aphrodite. And so when it said that they ate and drank and rose up to play, what it actually meant was that they made these sacrifices before this God. And then they they sat down and they ate the very sacrifices they gave to this pagan God. And then when it says when they rose up to play, it doesn't mean that they got up and they went shopping or they got up and hung out. Actually, what that word meant was that they got up. And the men, women and children all had sex together. That's what it meant. The God that they sacrificed to was a God of fertility and sexual immorality. And they sacrificed their lives to that God. And then they turned around and they lived that out. The idols that you have in your life, it changes you because you sacrifice everything for it. And then you just turn around and you live that exact kind of lifestyle out. It turns you into less of a human being. Idols, they cause you to come and sacrifice your life at their feet. But Jesus is the only God who brings the sacrifice to you. Jesus is the only God who comes to you and makes himself the sacrifice. And you live your life from that. See, what happened was they sacrificed to this God, this golden calf. And then that's where they got their value from. When you sacrifice to money, you get your value from money. Family, you get your value from family, anything else. But when Jesus has sacrificed himself for you, we get our value from that. That's what actually enables us to love one another. The next one is sexual immorality. 
Verse 8 says, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. God is gangster. What this refers to in the Old Testament was when the people of Israel, they slept with these women. They were Moabite women from another tribe. And a plague came upon the people. And 23,000 people died in one day. God is gangster. Now, I'm not here to preach that, you know, if you're sexually immoral, 23,000 people are going to die tomorrow. I mean, but what you need to know about sexual immorality is that it destroys you. Sexual immorality destroys your relationships and it destroys your purpose. You know why sexual immorality destroys you and destroys your relationships? It's because it reduces the people around you to objects. Now, instead of people being the people around you being people that you lay down your life for, it's people that you use for your own personal gain and your own personal pleasure. And the thing about objects is that objects decay. You can't have a relationship with an object. You know, if I have a pen, a pen's an object. I can't have a relationship with a pen. I hope you don't have relationships with pens. If some of you guys have relationships with objects, talk to me after service. You know, like, I love my coat. My, oh, my wallet. You know, giving your wallet names or something like that. That's weird. But a pen, like, take, for example, a pen. A pen is an object. I can't have a relationship with an object. But when I finish using that pen, what do I do with it? I throw it away. And what sexual immorality does is whenever you finished using that person or using someone else that you've made into an object, when you're finished with them, you'll throw them away. That's why cohabitation doesn't work. Because you're using that person as an object. And then when you get married, you're trying to shift it, but you can't because you've been using them as an object and that relationship will decay. Because you can't have a relationship with an object. Sexual immorality, it destroys us on the inside. There's this prevailing view in our culture that you can have mutual consent, right? Well, so what if I sleep with this person? So what if we sleep together? You know, she wanted to do it. I wanted to do it. What you're saying is that we mutually agreed to use one another as objects. We mutually agreed that you mean nothing to me, but for my own purposes. There's no relationship there. That's not love. That's mutual idolatry. And it will decay. And what begins to happen is then it changes you and it takes away your dignity and your purpose and your value. And then it exchanges shame and condemnation and a twisted sense of your self-worth. Because now all of a sudden, instead of you valuing that person because they're made in the image of God. And instead of you valuing yourself because you're made in the image of God, what lust and sexual immorality does is it causes you to value yourself and value other people by their looks or by their sexual performance or by their sexual orientation. Now, all of a sudden, you are what you do. And that's, that's not, 
who God made you to be. It's hard to have a family with that kind of value system. It's hard to have a legacy with that kind of value system. That's why our generation doesn't have families. That's why our generation doesn't have values and things that are being passed down. Because we're using one another as objects. The next one. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here saying, well, Pastor Marcus, that's good. I, I don't do that. The next one is tempting Christ. It says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. I don't want to get into that exact event which caused that to happen, but tempting Christ essentially is putting God to the test, saying, God, how much can I get away with? You know, I see believers do this all the time. They come up to me and they say, Pastor Marcus, is it okay if I do this? Is that sin? Well, what if I do this? Do I have to repent later? Well, what if I just masturbate? I don't look at pornography. Is that okay? And what you're really saying is how low can I go and it still be okay? Not how high can I go? Not can I be the person that Jesus wants me to be? Can I step into all his purposes and plans that he has for me? It's instead how low can I go and it still be okay? How much can I get away with without it being sin? I want to ask you, is that the kind of person you want to be? Reducing yourself to the lowest common denominator. Can I go to this place and it not be sin? Can I do this and it not be sin? What if I just do this a little bit? We didn't go all the way. It's not sin, really. But the attitude of your heart is how much can I get away with? Not God, how are you making me into the person that you're calling me to be? How can I best reflect your glory? Instead, it's how can I be a little bit better than the world? You know, the reason why the church in America is failing is because it's trying to be just a little bit better than the world. And the world doesn't want that kind of Christianity. The Corinth didn't want that kind of Christianity. They looked at that and said, oh, you're just a little bit better than me. You're not that heavy. You don't got that much going on. Forget you. Ask yourself, is that the way I want to live my life? Just finding the line and then trying to stay right there? I'll say, frankly, that's not a good life. That's not a life that Jesus died for. The last one. Grumble, grumbling, complaining. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And what I want to say before I go into this point is that all these things I'm saying to you today, I'm not saying because I'm this guy that wants to just grab the mic and then beat you up for an hour. Like, I, I did not sign up for that. I don't want that. It's because God wants you to become a person 
that will really reflect the sacrifice that he's made for you. He says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Another word for grumbling is complaining. Complaining is demonic agreement. Complaining is the one thing that establishes us in that place of lack. Complaining establishes you in a place of poverty. Complaining is the one thing that says that everything else in your life, all your circumstances, other people and in the enemy, they have more power over your life than Jesus does. They have more power over your life than you do. And the thing about complaining is that it's all about the attitude of your heart. Maybe you're not like me. I'm like, I'm phlegmatic sanguine, but I, I have a strong sanguineness about me where I can't hide how I feel. So if I'm wanting to complain, like you can see it, like my eyebrows, they get all crazy. Like my mouth, I'm trying like to hold. I think my body may even shake a bit. Like I'm just, mm, you know, like I can't hide it. And I know there's other people whose personalities, when they start to feel it, they can't really hide it. And so they just speak it out. But maybe some of you, you're a bit more melancholy. Maybe you don't say it out of your mouth, but you think it in your heart. But complaining, it rewires your brain to expect and only see the bad. Now, all of a sudden, everything sucks. Now, all of a sudden, nothing in your life is going well. Now, all of a sudden, you're all alone. Now, all of a sudden, everything is worse. You're the most lonely, most awful person in the entire universe, you feel like. And that's all because of what complaining does. It proclaims that the worst about yourself, about other people, and about God has manifested. See, when we lack gratitude and thanksgiving, we we miss the truth that every good and perfect gift comes from God. I was talking to Pastor John Michael yesterday, and uh, it was crazy. He was reading this book on marriage. And so, obviously, I asked him questions because I was interested And I was like, okay, what's that about marriage? Tell me. And uh, he was reading this book about healthy marriages. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, this, you know, this book is really interesting. He doesn't sound like that. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) JM, if you're listening, um, maybe in my mind, that's what I hear. I'm just kidding. Uh, But he was telling me about this study that this guy did about, about healthy marriages and unhealthy marriages and how people who have unhealthy marriages, they don't live as long as people who have healthy marriages. Their life expectancy actually is shorter and by a good bit. And this guy who writes this book, he did a study where he put the people into a house with cameras and then he also monitored their hearts and their immune system throughout. And he just put the couples in there and just, you know, just go like live your life, you know? And all of a sudden, The healthy marriages, he said he could tell within three minutes whether a marriage was going to last or not. And the way that he could tell was by gratitude and thanksgiving. Studies show that people who who walk in a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving, they live longer. You know, if you're sick all the time, it's probably because you're bitter. It's probably because you've not been showing any gratitude or thanksgiving. And the the craziest thing about it was that the marriages that lasted the longest and that were the healthiest and the people that that live the longest and are healthy, 
those are the ones who walk in gratitude. They walk in thanksgiving. And they have a stronger sense of having authority in their lives. You know why? Because thanksgiving and gratitude is a proclamation of having authority. But complaining is a proclamation that you've lost authority. Every time we complain, what we're saying is that something has happened to me that I cannot control. Something has happened to me that affects me and has power over my life. You know, when you're in the subway and the ajima pushes you. And the first thing we want to do is, man, that ajima, like she's this tall. She does not have that much authority over your life. She moved you three feet. They're strong. But when you think about it, these Ajumas, like, they're 70 years old. They've been walking around like this all day. Of course I'm going to push somebody, you know? <laughs> you know, if I was that, I'd be kicking people. I'd just have a cane and just <laughs> throw my bag on the seat. <laughs> of course, you know? But we get bitter and we start complaining as if that has that much authority to change your day and take your joy. Who has the authority? Man, that Ajima got some authority over you, doesn't she? Oh, my boss. I can't stand my boss. Oh, my job. I can't stand my job. Really? Does it have that much authority? Doesn't God give you the ability to produce wealth? Isn't he your shepherd? Doesn't he provide for all your needs according to his riches and godliness? Doesn't he provide? But what complaining does is it's a proclamation that we've lost the battle. But Thanksgiving is a proclamation that we've won. Paul speaks these things to them. He says, don't lust. It changes you. It it perverts the kind of person that you're meant to be. Don't don't walk in idolatry because it's going to corrupt the life that you're supposed to live. Don't walk in sexual immorality because it's going to turn you into a consumer and other people into merchandise. And that's not how God has meant you to live. He says, don't don't test Christ because you're not supposed to live at the lowest common denominator. You're meant to be light to the world. You're meant to set a standard that other people will want to be at. You're meant to be a city on a hill. He says, don't grumble because you have overcome. And then he he continues on. He gives them these five temptations that that Satan brings to try and reduce our quality of life to zero, to reduce us to a place of insignificance. And then go go on to the next verses. He tells them, you know, you need to listen. But verse 13, I want you to focus on. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You may have been tempted in all these areas, but I want to tell you that it's not uncommon the world they experience all five of these no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man but then he says something peculiar he says god is faithful he says where the world they succumb to these things where the world is continually perverted and continually being pushed down by these things while the world is always being corrupted by these things you will not be You will not be. Why? Because God is faithful. And that word faithful, full of faith. God is full of faith. 
You know what that means? That means that God is full of faith in terms of the investment that he's made in your life. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus is not sitting up in heaven right now worried about you. In fact, he believes in what he's deposited in your life so much that he would offer another choice. He would give you a way out. When you're tempted in lust, when you're tempted in sexual immorality, when you're tempted to grumble and to test and you're tempted to turn away, he says, no, I'm faithful. And I'm so faithful that I believe in what I put in your life that I'm going to provide a sixth option. I'm going to provide an opportunity for you to choose to go the other way. You know, for the world, talking about choice is meaningless. Because they haven't been given all authority. But when Christ died on the cross, he took sin with him and then he he was crucified, dead and was buried. And then he resurrected and he stood before his, his disciples. He stood before us. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And then he's given us that same authority. Which means he's given you the ability to make a choice. To choose a way out. And he says, therefore, Flee from idolatry. That word flee in the Greek, it means to take safety by flight. That word flee means to turn the other way at a higher level. You ever seen a bird in danger? They're very intentional about turning away from the danger and flying away, right? That word flee, it's meant to give the imagery of a bird flying away. You know, you ever seen Discovery Channel? You know, you ever watched a gazelle? You know, when the gazelle's just, you know, walking up all nice. And then it sees a cheetah, you know, and the cheetah's walking up in his cheetah print. Like, the gazelle's not like, oh, that's nice. Where'd you get that? Like, you know, should I stay? Should, oh, but that's so nice, man. That's embroidered. Where'd you get that? No, the gazelle makes a decision and it makes a decision to run away at a higher level than that cheetah. It makes a decision that it's going to turn away at a different level than what was approaching it. And many of us, whenever the world is coming at us, we don't we waver. We say, well, I don't uh, Well, you know, sex. Mm, 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 uh, But God says, flee. He says, make a decision and then turn and go. And when he says turn and go, he's not just saying you go at the same level that you are going in the opposite direction. He says, no, you go at a higher level. Which means you can't pursue Jesus with the same pursuit that you are pursuing those other things. You can't choose Christ at the same way that you are choosing lust and sexual immorality. No, you got to choose him more. You can't choose thankfulness at the same level that you were choosing grumbling. No, you got to choose thankfulness even more. You got to choose it at a higher level. Because that's the only way that you're going to walk in a way that's going to transform you and bring life to the world. I'll, I'll end with this. 2013 for me. I know it's the year of inspiration for our house, but the Lord spoke to me so clearly in December. And he said, Marcus. 2013 for you is going to be a year of being intentional and a year of moving in the opposite spirit. 
And what that meant was God was saying that he's calling me to make a commitment. To make a determination, to be intentional, to have a conviction, not have a resolution. Resolutions are about the kind of person that you want to be. Convictions are about the person you already are in Christ. Too many believers are trying to make resolutions when we need to stand on our convictions. He said, I want you to make a conviction. You want to stand on that conviction, have a conviction that you will be intentional and that in any environment you are in, you will move in the opposite spirit of the world. Wherever there is these things, you will choose the opposite and you will choose it with your whole heart. And as God's challenged me, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you that this year that you will choose to be intentional. You'll, you'll choose to be intentional instead of choosing lust. You'll choose love. Real love, serving people, laying down your life for others. Instead of idolatry, you'll choose worshiping God. Instead of choosing sexual immorality, you'll choose purity. You'll choose holiness. You'll choose valuing other people as being made in the image of God. Instead of testing Christ and trying to go as low as you possibly can, instead you'll choose to say, God, who do you want me to be? And you'll pursue that. Instead of grumbling and complaining every time something doesn't go your way, it's not all about you. You'll choose to be thankful. And see, when we do that as individuals and we do that as a community, that's when we become a city on a hill. That's when we are a light to the rest of the world. That's when we have impact. That's when lives are changed. Let's pray.